Hello, everybody. Good to see you. Good to have the opportunity to once again open up God's Word and consider what it is that He would be saying to us specifically, because we do believe that God's Word does just that. It's not just this nice body of material that is out there that somehow does the world good, but rather that this is something directed specifically at you and specifically at me. So we welcome you, those of you who are with us right now here in the live setting. We welcome those of you who are checking this out in the classic service or on the Moon Campus or online, wherever this finds you. This is good to be together as we continue on in this sermon series that we're calling, What's the Point? What is the point is what we've been asking. Now as we get started, by a show of hands, how many of you would say that you know someone who is a fool? All right, that's most all of you. How many of you are sitting next to that person right now? All right, (laughs) how many of you are looking at that person right now? All right, why is that the one where you all raise your hands? I'm just kind of wondering. All right, well, I have somebody else that I'm wondering if you might think that, that they're a fool based on what they have done. They were actually in the news just this last week. It was about a guy. He was at his mother's house, and he noted she, noticed she had a bunch of cobwebs all over the place. And so there's a nice 39-year-old son. He decided he wanted to do something for her to take care of all of those, and so he did. But he didn't use a broom like you or I might have. Maybe you saw this in the news. This guy used a blowtorch, a blowtorch to take care of the cobwebs in his mother's house. And guess what? He got rid of the cobwebs. And he started a fire. The house started on fire, and it was a big fire. They had three different stations that responded to this fire. It caused an estimated $100,000 of damage. Think about that. Now, this guy was actually arrested for what he had done there in his mother's house. It turns out (laughs) that that his mother actually had a restraining order against him. Sort of fills in a little bit more of the story, right? You kind of kind of wondering what was going on. So they arrested him on first degree arson. They took him down, and while they were booking him, they discovered that he had a bag of meth in his pocket. So I've got a burning question for you. Do you think this guy's a fool? Kind of kind of seems like he's an an idiot. Thank you for the audience participation. Or uh, seems like he would uh, perhaps be a bit of a fool, but, but maybe we should stop and just ask, well, what is a fool? What exactly or how exactly might we define who a fool is or what that looks like? Actually, we're going to be talking about that today because the Scriptures tell us a little something about that. In recent weeks, we have been looking at a fascinating part of the Bible called Ecclesiastes. And if you're one who has, has thought that basically the Bible is just this sort of neat little package of cookie-cutter goodness that is spoken about God, then you've never looked into Ecclesiastes. Because this is anything but cookie-cutter. What we have here is something that is very hard-hitting, that is very raw, as our author, we call him the preacher or the teacher, that's what he refers to himself as, one who, who leads a group of people or teaches others, he's been struggling to figure it all out. He's been trying to decide where, where's meaning found, and, and he's moved all the way from the beginning of this contemplation to saying, I can't find it anywhere. I can't figure out what this life is all about. He's saying, what's the point? 
He's moved all the way to where we've just started to see that he's finding the point in God. He's finding the point now, just starting to, where we've come in these studies in and through God. He's called the pursuit of God then wisdom. And we've been seeing what that's all about over the last (coughs) few weeks. But to better understand wisdom, he takes it a step further for us. He's looked at a lot of different facets. Today he takes it from a little bit different angle for us. And he does so by considering actually wisdom's opposite. And the opposite of wisdom we might call foolishness or oftentimes it's called folly. And so that's what we're going to be thinking about today. We're going to be thinking about this notion that a little folly goes a long way. That's what we're calling this message here today. A little folly goes a long way. There we go. And you can see where this is found. It's in Ecclesiastes chapter 10. And and as always, please open up a Bible if you would. Find it on your smartphone. Get it in an actual Bible. There are Bibles for those of you who are sitting in this room underneath every few seats, and you can find it there. Actually, even though it's kind of in the middle of the Old Testament, it's also kind of about in the middle of the Bible altogether. So you can just kind of open it up, find the big books of Psalms and Proverbs, and turn to the right, and you'll find it right there, that very next book. So this is where we're going to be. Good to have this open before you. We're going to march our way all the way through Ecclesiastes chapter 10 today. Solomon is going to have a lot to say about the fool and what he or she looks like in a lot of different realms of life. But he wants to start by giving us a little bit of an inside scoop on what exactly does the fool look like? Who exactly is the fool? What are the characteristics of their life? So he sets us up as an introduction to tell us that. And that's where we're getting started in meeting the fool. All right, that's the introduction, is meeting the fool. (coughs) The structure of this chapter is not a flowing narrative. It's not like it's just a story and you kind of follow the, the movement of the story all the way to the end. This is written like Proverbs. So you have kind of a, a statement and then another statement or, or an idea or an exhortation or a comparison that is made. And that's the way that this sort of progresses. And you can see that right as we get started in chapter 10 and verse 1. If you look at it, it says this. It says, as dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. All right. That's kind of an interesting, poignant way to get started, right? Dead flies in perfume. You didn't think you'd be hearing about that probably today when you, when you came to church. Dead flies in perfume. That's a pretty repulsive picture, and it's made even worse because the dead flies in the perfume actually make it stink badly. I think I actually went out with a girl who wore this perfume at one point. Not Carolyn, in case you were wondering about that. But apparently, dead flies and perfume was a problem in the ancient world. Who knew? But it is. And Solomon, as he's thinking about foolish people and foolishness, what comes to his mind are dead flies and perfume. Why? Because he's saying that where there is foolishness, that it has the ability to taint wisdom. Now, not so much that foolishness has power over people and groups who are wise, but rather within an individual, if one is trying to express or trying to live by wisdom, and all of a sudden they introduce foolishness, now that foolishness has the ability to sort of wipe out the wisdom that you were trying to move your way forward with. It's kind of hard to possess both at the same time is is sort of what he's saying. So verse 2 goes on, the heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. Now, first of all, a couple of things that this does not mean. 
This is not Solomon making a 21st century American political statement, all right? Just so you know, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying that there's wisdom to those who are on the right politically and foolishness on those who are on the left politically. Not what he's saying. Do not use this on a billboard during the next election cycle. It would be taking it out of context to be sure, all right? Some other people say, well, what he is saying is that people who are are right-handed or wise and people who are left-handed are foolish. That's not what he's saying. Don't worry. If you're a southpaw, if you're left-handed, this verse is not causing people who are right-handed to look down on you. They do that for other reasons, okay? But it's not because of this verse. Solomon is simply using the notion of the day that described the, the more desirable things as being on the right. And you've heard this sort of statement also. The right was considered to be the place of blessing or the place of authority or the place of of honor. We see that. We read, you know, want, somebody wants to sit on the right hand of somebody else because that's the place of honor. The, to go to the right was to go toward goodness and righteousness and, and God. And he's saying the wise person has inclined their mind, their actions in that direction. The foolish person has gone the other way, saying, toward impulsive disobedience and self-centered arrogance and a disregard for God's holiness. Now, it's not that... that necessarily the person who is a fool is unintelligent. Oftentimes, a a, a foolish person can be very, very intelligent. That's not what this is saying, but there's someone who, who ignores the most vital of life's priorities, including an understanding of God in a relationship with Him. The psalmist agrees, and he writes, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And Solomon has come to that place where he's making that same sort of understanding and trying to draw out some of that same idea. He's inviting his readers to consider if their own hearts are inclined to the right or to the left, if they're inclined toward wisdom or if they're inclined toward (coughs) foolishness. See, this isn't just some esoteric exercise. He's saying, what about you? And that's the place that we should start. We should ask ourselves, is our heart inclined toward wisdom or is our heart inclined toward foolishness. Now, the, the natural response of us would be, well, of course, it's inclined toward wisdom. That's just who I am. And now he's going to go on with more explanation as well as giving us some categories so that we might actually be able to do a deeper dive so we might understand it a little bit more. But first he goes on to tell us more about meeting the fool, verse 3. Even as fools walk along the road, they lack sense and show everyone how stupid they are. Saying it how he, don't you kind of wonder what this guy walking al- along the road was doing for him to say they don't realize how stupid they are? I mean, maybe he came across this guy. <clears throat> I mean, maybe, I don't know. That looks pretty stupid. That doesn't look like a very wise thing to do. But I don't think Solomon is actually making a point about what the guy is doing on the road, but rather that the guy's out there and he's just doing this foolish thing in full view of everybody. Now, nobody wants to be thought to be a fool, which suggests that if he's out there doing it in front of everybody, he doesn't even realize how foolish he is. And that's actually one of the characteristics of foolishness, is that the person who is operating in that sort of a category, in that sort of a way, doesn't even realize how foolish it looks. For the wise, it's like, oh my goodness, what are you doing? Aren't you embarrassed? They're like, no, why would I be embarrassed? Okay, it's a characteristic of the fool. He usually doesn't understand why or what see it in themselves. 
So maybe just one more thing as we meet the fool, and that is to take a quick look at some of the other characteristics that Solomon points out or has up to this point in the book. Now, chapter 10 is the central passage on foolishness, but he's been dropping it in here and there. And so elsewhere, we can see that the foolish, <clears throat> the foolish are some of these things. We can find it in other places. They're lazy in chapter 4. They're angry, chapter 7. They're morally blind, chapter 2. You can read that. They're lacking influence, chapter 9. And they are out of step with God in chapter 5. You can see all of those things. These are all things that are sort of filling out the picture on what does the foolish person look like. So, we've met the fool now. So, Solomon goes on to highlight, well, where do you find the fool? Where can these people be found. And he gives us some different categories. And the first of those that we're going to go and look at here is the fool in charge, or the fool who is in charge, or in authority is what we're talking about here. There's that for your outline if you want to jot it down. Now, I know we've all been in situations where the person in charge acted like a fool, right? We've all seen that. It's just a, it's a common thing that comes up from, from, you know, now and then. Those, the specific context where Solomon is mentioning that in relationship to this passage is a governmental leader. He's talking about a ruler or maybe an emperor. Let's take a look at this. Verse 4, he writes it like this. He says, if a ruler's anger rises against you, do not leave your post. Calmness can lay great offenses <clears throat> to rest. Keep in mind here now that the context means that this ruler has anger rising toward you because of his foolishness. There are other times that a leader, a ruler, a boss might have anger toward you because of your foolishness. Well, not you, but other people that we might know, not you or me, but other people, right, where it might be some sort of justified anger toward you. But that's not who he's talking about here. Here he's making the point that it's the ruler who is the foolish one. And when that happens, they tend to make foolish decrees, or they, they want to order you to go and do something that to you and your mind is just clearly out of step with what you ought to be doing. And we feel an inclination in those circumstances to respond to protect our own interests. And it's very easy to just sort of put our opinions out there and let them be heard. And because this person has authority over us, it can put us in sort of a, a weakened position to say the least. They, that might even make us feel good for the time so that we can kind of get it off our chest and let them know how we're thinking and how, how stupid their idea was. And, and we feel good for the moment. We've kind of got this momentary victory we feel, but ultimately it's just, it's just a defeat that we're setting ourselves up for. We're putting ourselves in a, in a difficult position. And Solomon says the better way is not to stomp off in protest or to just let them have it, but to respond in a way that's that's calm and, and cool and collected. The way that he said it here in this verse is that it has the power to lay great offenses to rest. Just think of that. Great offenses. Your response has the ability to lay what could be something that just blows sky high to rest. See, oftentimes something happens to us and it grates against our sense of, of how we should be treated and, and we start to dwell on it and we roll it over and over in our mind and we start to stoke the fire because we haven't found any sort of release for it and it just sort of builds up and builds up and maybe we complain about it to someone and they say, you're right, that never should have happened to you and, it, and pretty soon it just comes gushing forth. You ever been there? Solomon's saying that's, that's a characteristic of a foolish way to respond, but that's a choice that we are 
making. But we can also choose a different path, the path to diffuse the situation, a path to respond with calmness, respond maybe different from the way that all the other coworkers are responding, but a way that might be able to, to bring a healthy engagement, a healthy interaction instead of leading to some sort of crisis, he says. And he says when somebody responds in that way, Solomon says when somebody acts in that way, it demonstrates wisdom. Demonstrates wisdom. Elsewhere, Solomon wrote this, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. We've seen that, right? Both of these verses, the one we've just read here in Proverbs and also verse 4 of our passage, both of these are prescriptions for success in relationships, whether that's with, your, with some official or with a boss or with a professor with a teacher or with a child or with a parent or with a spouse. He's suggesting to us that we might get control of our emotions, that the wise person doesn't just respond to offense with another offense, that the fool just doesn't respond like a fool, and so on and so forth, that we don't get pulled into that, but rather there's a better way to respond, and he's described it to us right here. Then he goes on to indicate why this is so important. Verse 5, there's an evil I have seen under the sun, the sort of error that arises from a ruler. Fools are put in many high positions while the rich occupy the low ones. I have seen slaves on horseback while princes go on foot like slaves. Now, in a different context, we might expect those who are in these presumed positions of status like the rich and, and like the princes to actually be called to humility. And there are plenty of places in the Scriptures where that's exactly what the lesson is. But that's just not Solomon's point here. He could have made that point if he wanted to. He feels that way, but that's just not the point he's drive, trying to drive home in this situation. He's simply saying that the fool is willing to arrogantly exalt themselves over everyone else regardless of their understood relative position to one another. There are always going to be people in this life that we should show appropriate deference toward. But he's saying the fool is out there saying that you ought to be looking at me. You ought to be supporting me. You ought to be encouraging me. You ought to be backing me. You ought to be celebrating me above whomever says that's foolish. Solomon goes on to some other topics, but interestingly enough, he actually comes back toward the end of this passage to this same topic. Why? Because there are so many circumstances we find ourselves in where we encounter this sort of challenge of, of foolish leaders or foolish people in charge. And he says, you're going to need as much help as you can to make sure that you respond well in those circumstances. So he comes back to it, and if you fast forward now to verse 16, he picks it up again when he writes, Woe to the land whose king was a servant and whose princes feast in the morning. That sounds kind of wrong way to do it. He's saying you got a decent king, but the people who are serving under him don't have their act together. Verse 17, Blessed is the land whose king is of noble birth and whose princes eat at a proper time. For strength and not for drunkenness. 
The contrast here is between princes who are honorable and those who are foolish and feast in the morning. What's he saying? He's saying, is it right to be feasting in the morning? Yeah, probably not. What they should be doing is they should be out doing a good day's work. They should be out serving the people. They should be using their morning for productive activities. And instead, what they're doing is they're feasting, they're eating, and they're drinking. Basically, he's saying these are people who are, who are wasted by noon. He says there's foolishness in acting that way, but people have seen it, and they understand it, and, and he's just acknowledging that. So Solomon says these people are foolish, and it shows in their houses. Verse 18, through laziness, the rafters sag. Because of idle hands, the house leaks. A feast is made for laughter. Wine makes life merry, and money is the answer for everything. He just told us that the feast can be abused, but the problem wasn't the feast. The problem was the feaster, <laughs> if you will, the one who's choosing to enter into it inappropriately and actually sets themselves up for failure in the way that they do so. But the problem wasn't with the feast. Nothing wrong with feasting, of celebrating together, of getting together with other people and enjoying their company and and having those times of of rejoicing in common good and all that. Nothing wrong with that. Go ahead, lean into that. He said that elsewhere several times in Ecclesiastes now. He sort of keeps coming back to that idea. But he also brings up this thing that sounds probably jarring to your ears when you hear it, that money is the answer to everything. So what's that about? Well, it's not a proof text to to just go out and amass everything that you can possibly get. That's not what he's saying here. In fact, he's already told us his views on money because earlier we saw that he took and he used money and he used that as something to go after, something that he was pursuing to see if you could find meaning and purpose and value there. And you know what he came back with? He came back and said, absolutely not. There's no value to be found there. So we already know what he feels about that, at least in relationship to go and doing so sort of for our own gain. What have we seen him doing here in recent weeks, if you've been with us? He, he's coming around to the fact that these things are meaningless if done simply for their own benefit or for my own benefit. But when these things are done in connection with God or in connection with my relationship to God, all of a sudden they do start to take on meaning. And essentially that's what he's saying. He's saying that, that money does serve a purpose. It can accomplish all sorts of things. It can open up all sorts of doors for us, maybe toward feasting, maybe toward times of celebration, times of fellowship, times of supporting the work of God's good causes. And we thank you all the time for the way that you are partnering together with us as you support the work of the ministry. It's a great use of taking the things that God has given you and dumping them into good purposes. And thank you again for the way that you you do so. It enables ministry to be done. Saying a little folly can go a long way when those fools are in charge and in authority. But he says, look, you're not hopeless. It's not a helpless situation. Even if you're the one who is under the authority and the one in authority is foolish and is calling for all sorts of wrong things, evil things, you still have a way to respond a way to respond that is wise. You don't have to be stuck. He says, consider these ways that we have just laid out as we've thought about the fool in charge. Then another area that Solomon brings up, folly, is in writing about the fool at work. you got the fool in charge, you got the fool at work. 
And you might think we could be here all day talking about the fools at your work, <laughs> right? You're probably picturing some of them right now as we talk. But I believe that Solomon intends this section to be more introspective than accusatory. I don't think he's so much giving this to us so that we might look around and start pointing and saying, yeah, foolish, yeah, that person at work, oh man, they're foolish. Rather, to say, let me take a look inside. Let me take a look at myself and the way that I move forward in life and see what I might find and what foolishness there might be found in me. So let us glean what we can out of this. It says, verse 8, whoever digs a pit may fall into it. Whoever breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. Whoever quarries stones may be injured by them. Whoever splits logs may be endangered by them. A lot of different examples he gives here, but they're largely making the same point in all the different ones he mentions. The fool is prone to act without thinking and fail to make proper preparation so that they're not ready for circumstances that end up coming their way. So in here he says, well, they might dig a pit, but they don't take precautions so that they don't fall into it. Or they might go tear down a wall, but they're not concerning themselves with what might be inside that wall or what might be on the other side of the wall once I break through it. And the inference here is that they do fall in the pit, that the fool does get bitten on the other side. Continues in a similar vein in verse 10. If the axe is dull and its edge unsharpened, more strength is needed, but skill will bring success. If a snake bites before it is charmed, the charmer receives no fee. This is also about a fool not doing the logical things to experience success. He says the snake charmer allows himself to be bitten, and so he doesn't get paid, which to me is like the worst of all worlds. First of all, you have to be a snake charmer. That stinks. And then you're going to get paid as soon as you charm that snake, but he bites you first, and so you get bitten and you don't get paid. It's like, what worst job could there possibly be in the world? And the lumberman doesn't take the time to sharpen his axe, and his success is hindered. Then he adds in verse 5. That's all making the same point. The toil of fools wearies them, though they do not know the way to town. This isn't the fool who's weary of work because he's just worked so hard in the sweat of his brow and it's been such a long day out under the sun. No, the fool is wearied at the thought of work. The thought of going out and, and doing all of that stuff, so much so that he doesn't know his way to town, probably means that he's not inclined to make his way to town, which is probably the place that you would go to get hired by somebody so you could go work for the day. Doesn't know his way there because he wouldn't ever even entertain the idea of going and getting hired. <clears throat> so what are we supposed to make of this? Personally, I'll take any advice that helps us avoid snakes. So maybe there's something in there for that. But this is about more than the work that we do. It's talking about work, but it's about more than that if we dig down. Wisdom leads us to be prepared for the job, but also to be prepared for all of life. To be prepared not just when you dig a hole, but be prepared as a principle for how to move forward in life, for the things that are and the things that are coming. Jesus made this exact same point. In fact, there's much in Ecclesiastes and Proverbs that just parallels the teaching of Jesus. You can see it over and over and over again, and this is certainly one of those cases. Greatest sermon of all, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7. And right at the end of that sermon, Jesus is teaching about the wise man <coughs> and the foolish man. <coughs> He's working to make much this same point. <coughs> 
excuse me, he says that the wise man built his house upon the rock. And in that passage, it says the rains came down and the floods rose up. And the rains came down and the floods rose up. And the rains came down and the floods rose up. Anybody having a Sunday school flashback right now, all right? Several of you are, that's right, that good old song. And what happens is the house on the rock stood firm, absolutely. But not everybody was building on the rock. There was another dude who came along and he built his house on the on the sand, absolutely. And the rains came down there too and the floods rose up, but his house goes splat. Absolutely, you've sung the song, very good. All right, that's what happens. Wise man, foolish man, he's saying. Jesus' lesson here, as he wraps up his sermon, remember this is right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. You've got all the Beatitudes at the front, and then he goes through all sorts of different things as they pertain to practical life as we live them. Right there at the end of the sermon, here's what he says. <clears throat> he says, sort of in summary, got it right here. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man. What's he say? Everyone who hears these words of mine. What words? What words, Jesus? The words of the Sermon on the Mount. What are the words on the Sermon on the Mount about? Well, if you go back and if you read your way through that, it talks about coming to relationship with Jesus Christ. It talks about seeking first the kingdom of God. It talks about living our lives in such a way that we are devoted fully and completely over to Him. He says, what does wisdom look like? It says it's pursuing the things of God. It's understanding what God is calling us to and living in obedience and preparing ourselves so that we don't fall in a pit, so that we don't get bitten by life as it might come our way because we are prepared for the circumstances where we are and where it is that we're going. Jesus is jumping in on Solomon's point to try to help us to understand the direction that we're to go. The fool's life is lived by default. It's like, well, this comes along the way, and I'm just going to figure it out when it gets there. And something else comes along, and it kind of catches me off guard, and I don't really respond to it very well. But, oh, well, that's what the fool does. He's not prepared. He hasn't thought his way through. Where am I? Where am I going? How have I prepared myself with the Word of God and the person of Jesus and the Holy Spirit present so that I might have some wisdom? The fool lives by default. The wise live by design. They're saying, how do I prepare myself? What do I do so that I would understand the Word of God better so that when these circumstances do come up, I'm not just like a deer in the headlights trying to figure out, okay, now what do I do? I'm a step ahead of the game. That's what he is trying to tell us here. Not just about a wall and it's not just about a hole. It's about how do we prepare ourselves for all of the circumstances that are going to come our way because I can guarantee you you are going to be in a situation even this week when you are going to be faced with a decision and you're going to be like, boy, I don't know what I should do if you haven't prepared yourself. It's like, I'm going to figure it out when it comes. But you don't have to wait till then. You can sort it out now. And Solomon says there's wisdom in being prepared. There's wisdom in establishing that relationship with God. There's wisdom in understanding who He is. Jesus says there's wisdom in seeking first the kingdom of God. Why? Because all these other things will be added to you because you'll be in a place where you've learned, where you've grown, where God's wisdom will be applied to your life so that you might apply it forward on your own. That's what He is saying here. Solomon's peeling back these layers so that we get a good look at how little folly goes along the way. How a little folly goes along the way. And there's one more thing 
that he gives to us here in this text, and that is he's talking about another person or another group, and that is the fool in speech. You've got the fool in charge, you've got the fool at work, and you've got the fool in speech. One of the most telling proofs of whether one is wise or foolish are the words that they say, right? You've seen that. You've experienced that, I'm sure. Verse 12, words from the mouth of the wise are gracious, but fools are consumed by their own lips. Saying when it comes to using speech to determine if if someone is wise or foolish, the telling clues are actually not the language used. It's not the vocabulary used. It's not the grammar used in that. Yins know that, right? It, it, it's not about that stuff. What is telling is what the words of a person say about the heart of a person. That's what this is about. That's what he's going to be driving at here. In the case of verse 12, what the words reveal is that the wise person is gracious and the foolish person is consumed by their own lips or they can only think and talk about themselves. Have you ever had or maybe even just recently had a conversation with someone and it's really not that much of a conversation because they're very happy to talk about themselves and tell you about them and tell you about their their family and tell you about their life and tell you about their job and tell you about their problems and tell you about this and tell you about that, but they never get around to asking you anything about you. You ever had that conversation or that half side of a conversation? That's very telling, Solomon would say to us. Because wisdom, he says, is gracious. It's not just saying, I use the right words, and the words, the language communicates, or the, the language or the grammar tells you that I'm wise or not wise. He's saying what's behind the words is what the words are actually speaking. And in this case, he says that they are gracious. The wise person is gracious. And to be gracious, you have to look to the interests of another person. And so it's not the speech itself is about what am I saying, what are the things I'm communicating that actually look to your interests ahead of my own? Because in that we find wisdom. You might think, oh, well, I thought that was just being nice. No, that's wisdom, he says. And he specifically uses that word of speaking graciously. Verse 13 goes on, says, at the beginning their words are folly, at the end they are wicked madness. He's saying that the foolish person doesn't just stay innocently foolish. There's a progression that goes on in the heart and the mind, in the life of the fool. Now, we sometimes, if you're in a position of wisdom, you're looking out, you see somebody who's foolish, it's like, okay, well, too bad, stinks to be them again, right? I wouldn't want to ever be them because look at them. Look how foolish they are. Look how foolish they act. And, and it's just like, I just, I'm just glad I'm not them. And we go on our merry way thinking, well, that's just sort of, uh, you know, that's, that's their problem. But it's more than that. Because he's saying a fool doesn't just stay innocently in the same spot. What did he say? He says that they are wicked madness. At the end, they are wicked madness. Truth is that the fool has no problems at all lying about you. No problems at all slandering no problems using other people for their own ends and their own good. They might not even really realize that they're doing it, but they are. We went back, you know, to where we started. Fool usually doesn't even see what he's doing that looks so stupid on the road because he doesn't see it for himself, but it's there, and it can be very harmful. That's what he says. Verse 14, And fools multiply words. 
No one knows what is coming. Who can tell someone else what will happen after them? The implied answer here is, well, nobody can tell you what's coming in the future, but the fool tells you anyway. They've got an idea about everything. They've got an answer for everything. You met this person? Yeah, you know who this person is probably. Better to mark your words. Someone said, wise men speak because they have something to say. Fools speak because they have to say something, right? It's very different. Very different. Oftentimes, more words just reveal more folly. As someone else said with something that you might be more familiar with, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt, right? I love that. Solomon actually had one of his own. He said, even fools are thought wise if they keep silent (coughs) and discerning if they hold their tongues. There's an interesting suggestion from Proverbs (coughs) for us all. Words poorly spoken can get you into trouble, to be sure. That's how Solomon wraps up this chapter then in verse 20. It says, Do not revile the king, even in your thoughts, or curse the rich in your bedroom, because a bird in the sky may carry your words, and a bird on the wing may report what you say. It's going to sound like I'm making this up, but this is the origin of a little birdie told me so. I, I'm serious. I'm, I'm not make, it is the sort of thing I would tease you about, but I'm not teasing you in this, in this circumstance. This is actually where it originates. The words that you have to say have a way of getting back to the last person that you'd ever want to hear them, right? Yeah, that can happen. And he says the only way around that is to not say them in the first place. Solomon says there's wisdom in that. There's wisdom in that, and we know that that's true. So it turns out that a little... That the idea of a little folly goes a long way is absolutely true. But it's also true that a little wisdom can go a long way, too. It can transform relationships. It, it draws us to God. It can create peace all around us. It can calm a circumstance that otherwise would get blown out of proportion. And we can be the one who chooses to navigate it in that direction, instead of just adding more and more fuel to the fire. Wisdom gives us the ability in the moment to diffuse a situation rather than to ignite it. You can do so many things on our behalf, but here's the thing. Wisdom or foolishness is not a status that you're granted once and for all. Now, you tend to move in the category of wisdom if you tend to be wise. And it's true also that, that wisdom begets wisdom, if you will. Wisdom fosters more wisdom to be developed in your heart as you move your way forward. But it's not automatic. And it's not something that you should just assume will be the case. Wisdom is a daily choice. It's a choice to not retaliate when you're feeling wronged. It's a choice to pursue peace, to speak with grace, It's a choice to pursue Jesus with all that you are, to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, to recognize that what Jesus writes, this would be great extra credit for you, go home and read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through Matthew 7, saying, if I want to be wise, these things are going to be evident in my life. The wise person moves in that direction. It's a choice to do so. And interestingly enough, pursuing Jesus with all your heart every day doesn't just demonstrate wisdom, it develops it. It feeds on itself. 
it fosters more and more as we are intentional about doing so. But don't just assume that it's present in you. Or if someone has said to you that that is who they see you to be, that that's something that's automatic, and you're going to make that right choice in every circumstance. Because we're faced with a lot of split, or, you know, split second decisions that we need to make. So if you want to be wise, you can pray to God. God, make me wise. It's a great prayer. You should pray that. In fact, James, we've looked at it several times, says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all without finding fault. It'll be given to you. It's his promise. It'll be given to you. That's awesome. That's great. And that's a great prayer to pray. But I've got another one for you. Not to avoid that one, but to be sure that we add this one. Because most of us, we want to be wise. That's kind of where it ends. But based on what we've learned here, based on what Solomon tells us, based on how Jesus jumps into the fray as well to support Solomon's thought, his idea, his teaching, Jesus jumps in to help us understand that there's another prayer. And it's not just, God, make me wise. It's, God, make me more like Jesus. Because as you really start to boil this down, as you really start to see what is it that it's, that it's the heart of all of wisdom, it's a relationship with Christ. And as we lean into that, and as we foster that, guess what's going to come along with it? Wisdom. So I'm not saying stop praying for wisdom. You should. But that's only a piece of the puzzle. If we really want to be filled with wisdom... It's going to go further still because here's the thing. Wisdom should not be seen by us as characterized by being able to sit down and people come to us and we just dispense it. Here's a gem of wisdom. Here's what you should do. Here's what God would have you to do. That's not wisdom. Wisdom is pictured more as the one who's up out of the chair and is out giving and serving and loving and engage because that's what Jesus has called us to do. <clears throat> and until we take the step of engagement, until, until we take the step of involvement in other people's lives, we're never going to find the place where wisdom dwells. But if we do get there, what we're going to see is that we make a difference in our lives, in our families, in our church, in our community, and beyond. Because a little wisdom goes a long way too. And so I would challenge you with this idea, this notion that we've had, that, that wisdom is about an idea that we have in our mind. It's about our ability to decide. And when you pray, you're praying for wisdom about this and wisdom about that. Why? So that you might know what you should do. So that you might know what the answer would be from God. When we, what He's calling us to, to really live by wisdom, goes so much further than that and is demonstrated in so much more than that. And so let's not sell ourselves short. Yes, a little foolishness, a little folly goes a long way, and it will interrupt your movement toward wisdom. So it's very important that we would put that in the rearview mirror. And the way to put it there is not just to pray it away, it's to fill our lives up so much with pursuing Jesus that there's no room for the other, that it's so obvious that this is where we're. So that's the commitment that we make today. Not just to pray that we wouldn't be foolish and that we would be wise, that we'd be like Jesus. Because that's where wisdom ultimately is found.
and is energized and is recognized, it makes a difference in our heart and all around us as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this book is so full, so full of helping us to understand just the practicalities of life, where we are, how to move our way forward, how to navigate a way positively forward. Lord, there is so much foolishness that we see all around us, and it's so obvious to us when we take a look, and we wonder, how could it possibly be that that person doesn't see it, that they're out on the road and they're looking so foolish, and they just live it up because it looks like something other than foolishness to them. Because the truth is that people who are foolish are blinded to their own foolishness. And Lord, that's a little bit terrifying because that means that we aren't able to just assess on our own asking, am I wise or am I foolish? Because we would never be able to make the statement, I'm foolish, because we wouldn't see it. We'd never see it. We can only do so by evaluating where we find ourselves over against what you're calling us to do. Because we can ask ourselves, am I seeking first the kingdom of God? And I, am I pursuing who Jesus is? Am I becoming more like him day by day by day? Because if we can't answer affirmatively to those questions, then those seeds of foolishness are sprouting in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage to do the introspection, to determine and discover where are we and where is it that we need to go so that we might live by wisdom that comes from above and that leads us to a place of walking more and more closely with you, we pray in Jesus' name.